Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey everybody, it's Devin Kadayama. You're listening to The Bay. So we're hard at work on some special election episodes for you next week. And in the meantime, we wanted to share another story, one that we did back in June, but that's still really relevant and important right now. It's about San Quentin State Prison. Earlier this summer, COVID-19 started to spread throughout the facility. And as the months went on, the situation got a lot worse. Thousands of people were sick and at least 28 people have died, according to the state's data. Now, a California court has ordered prison officials to reduce the facility's population by half. So today we're going to play our episode from late June when journalists, including KQED reporter Kate Wolf, were just starting to learn how the coronavirus spread inside San Quentin. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. I reached out to people in a Facebook group for people whose loved ones are incarcerated at San Quentin, looking to see if there was anyone who could tell me about how they were feeling, seeing what has been happening at San Quentin with the rise in cases. Kate Wolf is a reporter for KQED. She also volunteers in the prison as an editor for the San Quentin News. Vanessa Silva reached out to me and she uh, wanted to talk about her fiance Floyd, who has been inside for a little over a year and is serving a 25 year to life sentence. I mean, before we were, I mean, pretty uncomfortable, but at ease because there was no positive tests there and they were doing everything that they needed to be done, like giving them masks, you know, sanitizers, just like the basic stuff. She has been feeling really anxious. She's been sitting by her computer, I think, refreshing the COVID patient tracker that CDCR has set up. And she's just been refreshing it to see those numbers increase. And she's been really alarmed by that. So now it's a little different because now, you know, just the anxiety of are they safe? Are they, you know, how do they practice social distance? Uh, Do they have, you know proper, you know, PPE for them? Do they even care if, you know, they contract the virus? And then what is the protocol after that for them? When do we first learn that there are people in San Quentin who've tested positive for COVID-19? So we first learned of that on June 1st, which is two days after the transfer. 
So a lot of people suspect that this all happened because of an ill-fated transfer on May 30th. That transfer happened because the California Institution for Men has a lot of people who are older and medically vulnerable, and CDCR was told that they needed to transfer a good deal of these men out in order to quell the outbreak there. So, so it's basically like they were transferring people out of crowded prisons because of COVID into other crowded prisons? Exactly. Protesters say despite a massive outbreak at the men's prison in Chino, 121 prisoners were transferred to San Quentin without being tested. So after we hear about that first outbreak on June 1st, how do the numbers of positive COVID cases grow from there? The numbers kept increasing, but it was still people who had been transferred. And then June 11th, we were told that 16 people who had been transferred um, had gotten sick. And then the numbers just kept increasing. June 17th, there were 46 cases. June 23rd, there were 365 cases. The day after, there were 445 cases. And then June 25th, um, sorry, I'm just looking at the tracker. So this is interesting. St. Quentin has just passed Chuckawalla Valley State Prison, and now it's at 497. Doing a transfer like this sounds like it would be really tricky. You know, you'd have to take a lot of precautions to do it just right. What did prison authorities know about the men who were being transferred to San Quentin from a prison where COVID-19 had already broken out? So the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation has not been very forthcoming with information. The CDCR has said that everyone was tested and screened prior to being transferred, but by omission that the CDCR didn't mention that some of these people had been tested a month before being transferred instead of just days as as would have been assumed. One attorney that I talked to said it was like trying to save elderly people from a burning building. What is sad and ironic is that without having tested them properly, by making that transfer, you're starting the fire at San Quentin. Once they're transferred to San Quentin, how did prison authorities ensure that those who were sick were isolated from everybody else? The information that has come out about the isolation is definitely worrying. CDCR has said that prisoners were immediately tested upon arrival at San Quentin and were isolated. They're brought to a building called South Block, and South Block has multiple floors. They're put on the top floors, uh, and the people who have previously been in San Quentin are housed below them. Why that's important is because it's possible that coughs and, and droplets from people who were sick could go down to the next floor. You're saying like we're hearing reports, and I don't think it's coming from CDCR. How do we know all this? I mean, if, if they get rid of all this overcrowded, it wouldn't be so bad. Incarcerated people who are inside San Quentin can still communicate with the outside world. Um, communication is definitely limited, but we are hearing from them what conditions look like inside. The only way that we can curb this corona is they have to start releasing people and, and get this overcrowdedness out of here, you know? Brian Acey is a man serving a life sentence at San Quentin. They spend more time on trying to keep 
keep these people in here and lock them up when some people go home in six months or seven months, they can let those people go. He works at the Media Lab. I know him. And he's been communicating about the conditions inside. A lot of elderly people, yeah. I guess they so much on punishing and, and, and trying to get all the time out of people. And, you know, they can, some of these, some of the, most of the people, a lot of people in here have mental cases. They shouldn't be in prison. Let's go back to Vanessa and her fiancé, Floyd, who is incarcerated in a different cell block than where the outbreak started. Is he concerned at all? I think Vanessa and Floyd had been communicating about how well things were going, and then there was a lot of fear when this transfer had happened. When Vanessa talked to him last weekend, we hadn't confirmed that it had reached the general population, and now we know that it has reached the general population. At least one case has been confirmed uh, to be in North Block. Like we know, we're trying to be hopeful and stay positive. Um, just overall, um, you know, and I think for him, he's like, you know, he's in that position, but he's just trying to bring me at peace. Uh, but I just worry because I mean, God forbid he does. And then like, what happens after that? You know, they're not going to be given probably the best medical treatment or whatever they need to to help, you know, fight the virus. I mean, I think what's really important to mention here is that like, Correctional officers, they move in various other parts of the prison. So if someone, you know, is guarding people or is doing their duty in South Block, which is where a lot of these cases have been clustered, they probably will do a shift in East Block. If the virus has reached the general population, the public health experts that I've talked to say it is assured that it is going to spread like wildfire in other parts of the prison. And so it's not just spreading among inmates, right? It's spreading among the guards and staff. Yes, at least 47 members of staff uh, have tested positive. How does San Quentin then protect the people who both already have COVID and those like Floyd who are now at risk of getting it? Do they have masks, sanitizer? Do they even have enough space to distance? They they definitely do not have enough space to distance. To give you an idea of how small the cells are, uh, men are two to a cell, and if a man is standing in a cell uh, and puts both of his arms up, he can touch both sides. CDCR has said that they have given people masks, um, but we're hearing from people on the inside that guards only sometimes wear the masks, that Even nurses who are treating people are not wearing masks. What CDCR has done as well is convert the gym, for instance, into dorm living. But Juan Haynes, who's a reporter uh, with the San Quentin News and has been reporting from the inside about conditions for the appeal, he says that people are a foot away from each other on either side. What are people on the inside and people advocating on the outside saying about what's happening right now? Health experts at UC Berkeley and UCSF, they were raising the alarm that there were not enough places to isolate people safely and that people were going to have to start isolating in their cells, which would be incredibly dangerous. They write in their memo that, um, that it is, quote, inconceivable 
that there are people who are over 60 who just have a few weeks left on their sentences who are still housed at San Quentin. Today, activist prisoners and their families are demanding action to stop what they're calling a brewing public health crisis at San Quentin State Prison. In a virtual press conference today, uh, activists said COVID-19 started rapidly spreading through prison walls last week. I think a lot of people want to believe that, that this transfer was done because they wanted to save people at the California Institution for Men. They did it poorly and they they did it clumsily and there are dire consequences now at St. Quentin. Since then, the total number of confirmed cases at San Quentin kept growing. As many as 2,200 incarcerated people got sick. Nearly 300 employees did too. And at least 28 people have died. On Tuesday, a state court ordered officials at San Quentin to reduce the prison population to less than half of its capacity by transferring people or letting them out early. The judges wrote that those in charge of the prison showed, quote, deliberate indifference to the dangers that incarcerated people were facing. And while California has released more people from its prison system lately, there's still this really big fear of more outbreaks. Assemblymember Mark Levine, who represents the area that includes San Quentin, said in a statement that without a significant reduction in the prison's population, it's not a question of if another COVID-19 spike will happen at San Quentin. It's a question of when. Bay is produced by Erica Cruz Guevara and our editor Alan Montecilio. KQED's podcast leadership team includes Jessica Placek, Erica Aguilar, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. We're made by your local public media station, KQED. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it from us. Have a safe weekend. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.